Welcome to our third uh, reboot uh, series. Um, um, sorry for being a little bit late. Um, I'm still getting too used to the, the live streaming. And for some reason, I somehow didn't quite manage it this time properly. Um, but let me go straight to uh, our, my introduction. Uh, with me today is Robert Castaldi. He uh, is based in uh, Pisa in Italy. Um, and he is the, the chief exec and the founder of the International Center for European and Global Governance. He's also an associate professor um, at the uh, eCampus University, and he's the director of uh, Euractiv Italy, uh, which is a part of a pan-European media platform. Uh, uh, Roberto is sort of positions himself so really at the at the at the intersection of European activism on the one hand and being an academic on the other and I really look forward therefore uh, to welcome him uh, to to this session so what I have to do as a first thing is I have to I had invited him in but um, for some reason of course I had um, I had a problem with uh, uh, um, doing the connection so let me just see that I get this now going. Uh, so um, I'm going to have to basically copy here the um, the login details. Um, um, Roberto Castaldi, there we go, and sent him the invitation. So that's gone out. So let's see that I can get Roberto um, uh, here on uh, on the um, on the on the YouTube. Um, so whilst I'm waiting for Roberto to come on, let me say a little bit about, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, of uh, Reboot 2030 and how we came about to do this. Uh, originally, we wanted to have a direct response to the COVID crisis, but that uh, very quickly became one of many projects. A lot of people uh, felt that they wanted to respond to that. And, and also in a way that the discourse, the debate moved on to, to the more fundamental questions of what, what, these, what this crisis, uh, what, uh, what this pandemic uh, tells us about how we need to prepare for, uh, for, for the future. Um, so, um, so we started uh, really looking around and um, um, now let me just see whether this is whether he is coming. Ah, oh, there he is. So we okay. Let me just bring him on straight away. Okay. So now there we go. Roberto. There you go. So now this time I think we are live. I am really sorry for this mess up. Um, for some reason I mixed up the live streams the the streaming key and whatever have you so um but we're now live and i've just and the whole the whole uh caboodle did uh confuse me a little bit so i didn't really give you the kind of introduction you deserve uh roberto i did say though that you are the the founder and chief exec of the uh, international center for european and global governance that you're an associate professor at the eCampus University, which I believe is a, a distance learning or a, a, an online-based uh, institution, and that you are also the, the director of uh, uh, Euractiv uh, Italy, Euractiv Italy, which is part of the uh, pan-European Euractiv platform, media platform. Um, I did also say that you're somehow located at this intersection between academia on the one hand, 
think tanks on the other, and of course, activism as well. You're sort of, you're a totally sort of a, a, a passionate a, a federalist. You've been active in, in, in the federalist moving movement for a long time. Uh, and of course, uh, your kind of European activism very much falls into, into this bracket. So let me pass on uh, to you at this point and just ask you first to give us a little bit of a more background to who you are, um, how you came to be a sort of a, 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 a European activist and academic, um, and um, what you have learned on your journey with regards to sort of uh, Europe's future. Well, uh, I was born in Sardinia, and I was uh, lucky enough that when I was in my high school, there were some uh, university professor, Federalist University professor in Sardinia, who came to do some conference in my high school. And uh, so I've, I was already very interested in uh, political and social issue, and that came as an enlightenment for me. That was what I, I was looking for, something that was not a party, but was a, a, a civic uh, uh, organization trying to empower citizens, to give them the chance to uh, uh, interact on the social and political level. And so I joined first the Young European Federalist and then the European Federalist Movement, and I'm still an activist uh, today at the local, uh, national, and uh, European global level. And, this is, this is, let me just, I mean, I think this is a very typical kind of thing with sort of European activism is that a lot of people come to it not through a party political route, uh, but really through a kind of through a cosmopolitan route or through a sort of a need to kind of bring Europe and its neighbors closer together. Is that? Absolutely. I, I was 15. And it was uh, uh, the end of 1988. Uh, it was there was perestroika in, uh, in in the Soviet Union, and there was this debate about the common European house, and that that was a, a time of great uh, hope. 1989 then arrived with all that uh, implied, and uh, uh, an all new world opened up. And Federalists looked to me uh, as a good instrument to try and understand. Uh, how to deal with uh, what was happening and, uh, and how to try and change the world for the better. And uh, then I was uh, lucky enough again, but uh, I'm a lucky person overall, um, to win a scholarship to attend the United World College uh, of the Adriatic. The United World Colleges are a series of colleges that are about 15 around the world that have the aim of uh, promoting international understanding. Uh, and uh, there are in each of the college, there are people from 70, 80 different countries. So I had the chance, uh, now this is very common, there is plenty of international school, but uh, in 1990, I had never had any foreigner in, my, in any of my classes at school in Sardinia, a uh, small island in the Mediterranean. And uh, so it was a, a very formative experience for me to look at things from very different perspective and to take up a supranational cosmopolitan perspective, which I think is the most peculiar uh, attitude of mine regarding my uh, activity as a scholar, uh, trying to understand what's happening in the world, at European integration, but also on the global level. And there is, in, there is something, some, some kind of fundamental criticism that I pick up very often is, is that people find uh, find Europe quite an abstract idea. I mean, there's a lot of it about it isn't abstract. I mean, we all know that we're European in some ways. We we have some kind of dirty secrets. We have kind of a colonial history. You know, we're often accused of being Eurocentric in the kind of in the global context. Um, so we kind of know what it means to be European, but we don't really, once we are asked, we kind of struggle to explain what that is. Um, and um, 
And at the same time, uh, there's a sort of a sense that being active at a European level is quite removed from everyday life. So when you kind of got involved with the European kind of project, if you like, um, how did you deal with these two issues? The one being that, that, you know, it's one thing to say I'm Italian or I'm German, and we have a sense of what that means. But when we say we're European, it becomes more difficult. How did you deal with that and what does it mean to you? And also, how do you relate that to your everyday sort of activities and your everyday life? Well, first of all, I feel as much European as I feel a citizen of the world. And, and, and federalism uh, as a political thought, to be coherent, needs to be, is about multi-level government. It's about the recognition of interdependence. We have certain problems at the local level that we need to deal with with the local government, some problem at the provincial, at the regional, at the national level, some problem at the continental level, and many problems now at the global level. And we would need a global government to cope with them. And so when we are speaking about federalism, I I don't speak about Europe, I speak about federalism, because it's about creating different levels of government to cope with different problems which means uh, it's very linked to our everyday life. When we discuss about climate change, we are discussing about Europe and the world. We are not discussing about anything else. And, uh, and this is, in a sense, my message. One of the uh, difficulties in coping with uh, climate change, and one of the reasons why the European Union is uh, at the vanguard in this fight, is because in Europe we have been able to create a supranational institution with real power and competencies on that issue that have been able to make rules and to have the member states comply so that they will get eventually to net zero by 2050 and reducing 50% by 2030 and so on and so forth. We are not being able to do that at the world level because we have not been able yet to create a supranational institution at the global level. And in a sense, when I'm inviting citizens to participate in the conference on the future of Europe, to ask for a federalization of the EU, it's because this is important, not just for the Europeans, but for the world. And I would like to explain why, in my view, but also this is a, a classic a tradition federalist position, for European Federalists at least, the idea is to unite Europe to unite the world. The European Federation is not a goal in itself. Otherwise, we would have to take a European nationalist point of view. It's a step in a process. The point is today we live in a world where most great power have chosen the path of power politics. The US is engulfed in a struggle for hegemony on the global level with China. The, Soviet, the former Soviet Union has remained uh, as Russia as a, a middle range power, but to justify its uh, regime, it needs to have some uh, uh, success on the international level. So it's a very aggressive foreign policy. The European Union is made up of very different people, is a, a weak form of uh, a multi-level government so far. It's not a fully fledged federal system yet. And even if we manage to turn it into a fully-fledged federal system, it will have a very small budget, an extremely small military capacity, which means it will never be able to go for power politics at the global level. And this explains why the EU is the champion of multilateralism, of international cooperation, and so on. And that's why I would like to strengthen the EU. 
because the more we strengthen the EU, the more it turns into a, an actor on the global level with a single foreign security and defense policy, the more we'll be able to propose its own model of pooling and sharing of sovereignty, of creating supranational institution to solve the many global problems we have. And this is about peace and uh, nuclear proliferation, is about uh, climate change, of course. It's about the development of the uh, third world because it's very nice to speak about climate change, but unless we invest massively in the countries that were today, there is still famine and people dying by hunger in the world, unfortunately, still today, you cannot ask these countries to put themselves the problem of uh, 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 the, the kind of energy they use. They need first to give uh, food to their people. So this implies, and, and from all this perspective, the EU is uh, the main provider of uh, international help and development, is uh, the main trade partner for most uh, countries in the world, and it's always on more on the cooperative side. When there is a problem, they always try to solve it by peaceful means. So strengthening the EU means to strengthen this way of looking at the global problems. And so strengthening those who can help provide the global public goods, because that's what we need. The European Union has been successful so far because it has provided the European with some public goods basically prosperity through the single market first and the single currency afterwards. The issue today in Europe is about climate change and for the next generation EU, which has incorporated the Green Deal with the environmental transition and digital transition, we are trying to provide these other public goods, which is the fight against climate change, the environmental transition. There is another crucial public good that member states are unable to provide, and this is security the stabilization of the neighborhood. We have plenty of geopolitical crises from Belarusia to Ukraine, to Syria, Libya, Middle East and, uh, and, and North Africa. This is the neighborhood for Europe. And uh, we know that the United States will not take care of, the, of our neighborhood because they are caught in this struggle with China. The American strategic focus has shifted to the Pacific in a structural way. The United States will never be significantly engaged again in the Middle East, North Africa, the European neighborhood, if this is not as a response to a Chinese move. And we have seen this because when the Russia built military bases in Syria on sent troops in Libya, the United States didn't react because Russia is not anymore a potential hegemon on the world level. The potential hegemon is China. So the US answered to the Chinese move, not to the Russian move. But this leaves Europe in a vacuum. All this instability around Europe is due to a power vacuum. When the United States' strategic shift, uh, strategic focus shifted to the Pacific, there was a power vacuum. Europeans need to fill this vacuum, need to have the capacity to stabilize the area, which means on the one hand, to develop a massive investment plan for this area to produce economic growth, but environmentally and socially sustainable. But on the other hand, they also need a military capacity to stabilize this area. Because if you pour money into a country where there is a civil war, this money will not go into development, but it will go into weapons. This is, uh, unfortunately, this, we have seen this for decades. So we need to co, and if we think about the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, the Marshall Plan had two pillars. On the one hand, the money, on the other hand, the American military bases. 
only the country that accepted the American military bases would be able to get the money. Because you could not invest in countries where you were not sure about the stability and the regime at the time. Today is the same. We need to be able to stabilize the area from a security perspective and to invest them massively in order to develop them and to develop them in an environmentally friendly way. So these are the tasks that the European Union has in front of itself. And, and these are reasons that by strengthening the EU, we strengthen also the global order, the provision of uh, European and global public goods. And to do that, we need to reform the European Union. Okay, let me just stop you there for a second. Um, the, 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 these are all uh, sort of reasons why Europe, um, you know, ha has an important role to play uh, in the world. Um, as a citizen, um, I'm sort of sitting on the ground and I'm looking up or I'm looking out and I see, you know, the, the European Parliament, uh, I, I see the European Commission, I see European institutions, the central bank and so on and so forth. And, um, and I see them, you know, like really in, in, in the far distance. And it's sometimes very, very difficult to co connect with that in, 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 in any kind of meaningful way. Um, in, in fact, I, I'm not sure how, I mean, like some, you know, uh, MEPs, uh, members of the European Parliament, uh, do have close relations with, uh, with their constituents, but more often than not, they are very much sort of hedged away, hidden away in, 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 in committee rooms and in meetings in Brussels, in Strasbourg and, and elsewhere. And there is a sort of a sense of disconnect, a sort of sense of not being really part of it. On the other hand, of course, there is a huge missed opportunity here. Um, and what people very often, I think, do forget is, is that it is much easier to get involved in these debates than, than you might think fr from the outside. Um, so, uh, but of course, first of all, I as a citizen need to kind of get my head around to decide, well, which debate is actually a good debate for Europe? Uh, and which debate should I actually kind of have locally, either in my local community or at a regional or national level? Um, so, so I believe there's this principle within the EU of this principle of subsidiarity, so that you always would say, you, you know, within the EU, we always try to solve problems at the lowest possible level. And that's a quite a good filtering me mechanism that every citizen can apply to himself or herself. You can say, well, should I kind of deal with this at, you know, should I kind of get in touch with my MP, with my member of parliament in my country, or should I indeed kind of get in touch with my MEP, my member of the European Parliament, or should I in some ways get involved with the whole project myself? Um, and when you take, for example, something like climate change, and when you apply that filter, you very quickly realize that this isn't a problem that can be solved at the local level. This isn't a problem that can be solved at the national level. So the European level actually is still not the right level, but it gives us like a sort of a, a, a megaphone. It allows us to speak much louder and to reach much further. There's other issues, for instance, tax avoidance. A lot of people get really annoyed about the way money is being shifted around. And, you know, there's many companies who pay very little or no tax in Europe because they can move money around. Of course, Europe could close those tax loopholes. And I believe they are in the process of attempting to do just that. And there's many... Yep. There was a proposal by the Juncker Commission to do that, and these require the agreement of the member states to move taxation issue from unanimity to qualify majority voting. And this is a crucial issue in institutional terms for all subjects, because when there is unanimity, that's the tyranny of the minority. 
it's enough that one member state says no and nobody can do anything. Could you it explain means, that principle just for people who don't are sure. familiar with the term? In the European Union, decisions are usually, there are basically two decision-making procedures. One is the ordinary legislative procedure in which the European Commission makes a proposal which needs to be approved by both the European Parliament by absolute majority of its member and the Council of Ministers where the member states government are represented. And this is by qualified majority voting. Qualified majority in the EU means 55% of the member states representing 65% of the European Union population. So there is a double element to be considered. So if you only add 55% of small states that make some, don't make a two thirds of the population, this would not be carried. On the other hand, if you don't reach the 55% of the member states, even if they are big and they are more than 65% of the population, anyway, the decision cannot be taken. So this is a, a tool to protect on the one hand, the small member states, because you need a majority of member states and most of them are small member states. On the other hand, you are protecting also the majority of the citizen because decision to be carried need to be uh, approved by uh, a majority of member states representing two thirds of European citizens. So this is a, a very democratic way to take decision. But on certain issue, we don't apply this uh, ordinary legislative procedure, but we apply a special legislative procedure in which the council decide by unanimity. And usually the parliament has only a consultative role. The parliament is the only directly elected institution in the EU. So the fact that in those areas, it only has a consultative role is not a good thing from a democratic point of view. And the fact that the national government decide by unanimity is uh, also not a good thing. Because it means that uh, I mean, the EU has about 450 million inhabitants. And it's enough that uh, there are, I mean, 300,000 citizens in Luxembourg can stop a decision by 450 million. That's, uh, a, from a democratic point of view, a disaster. And I'm making the example of Luxembourg because when we are speaking about tax harmonization, Luxembourg, uh, Ireland, uh, and the Netherlands uh, are among those member states uh, who have been against this harmonization. If we were uh, under the ordinary legislative procedure with qualified majority voting, we would have already had tax harmonization regarding uh, certain aspects of uh, uh, enterprise taxation, financial taxation, and so on. The commission has made uh, the proposal to move to qualified majority voting in a progressive way on step-by-step step on taxation issue. And each step would uh, increase uh, the level of harmonization. And overall in five years provide something like 300 billion euro of more revenue for the European citizen. That's a huge amount. Huge. And uh, it's almost like the next generation EU itself, which was 350. So uh, the, this, which was 750, so half the, 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 the next generation EU. So this is something uh, that we should really consider. But I want to come back also to the other point you made about the accessibility and uh, of the European Union. The reality is that people think that the EU is distant, but the EU is not. In fact, very often it's much closer than national government. And I'd like to make three examples, very uh, quick ones. First, today we have a conference on the future of Europe with a multilingual digital platform, futureeu.europa.eu, 
where each and every European citizen in her or his own mother tongue language can insert her or his ideas on the European policy, institution, reform, can like or dislike the ideas posed by others, can put events that organize at grassroots level in different countries on one of the topics. And there are nine main topics uh, of the conference from climate change to Europe in the world, the economy, uh, rule of law and fundamental rights, security, migration, health, and so on. So on all uh, competence of the EU, citizens can express themselves. You don't find such a platform at the national level where citizens can tell the government what they want. Second, every time that the European Union wants to regulate something, before putting forward a legislative proposal, the Commission is obliged to make a public consultation. So before any legislative proposal is made, there is an open, again, an open digital platform where every citizen organization can put his, his or an idea about that subject on which the Commission is planning to present a legislative project. In the national level, we don't have such a thing. The government is not obliged to tell six months before we would like to make a legislative proposal on this, give us our ideas so that all think tank, NGOs, uh, trade unions so on can express their opinion. So on the one hand, at the European level, we do have uh, tools and we do have uh, a public debate, which on the one hand, it's uh, uh, very uh, focused on policies. So on substance, on contents, because NGOs, trade unions, uh, enterprise participate in a systematic fashion to all this consultation. So policy making at the European level is very well informed. So there is a wide debate. The truth is this is a debate that uh, channel at the European level what happens at the grassroots level with these big organizations, trade union, big NGOs, environmental one, uh, and so on. So sometimes citizens don't realize that there is this debate, but in fact, this debate is happening and is happening more at European level than at national level. My there's, third there's, point is yeah, about just direct. Let me just cut in here very quick, quickly. Um, so basically, just to sort of summarize uh, the, 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 this bit. So what you said is saying is, is um, at a European level, there there is a kind of, if you like, a regulatory requirement. Uh, you could, you know, or you could almost sort of say a legal requirement based on European uh, law um, that requires input by civil society into the decision making process, and that input comes uh, in, in different forms and shapes. Uh, businesses and non-governmental organisations charities and so on and so forth, um, they have in a way institutionalized their participation to a large extent. So they will almost automatically, each time when there is such a consultation, they will take this serious and they will contribute. So I, as a citizen, uh, I mean, I wear different hats. Sometimes I'm a citizen and I'm a businessman. Sometimes I'm a citizen and I'm a sportsman. Sometimes I'm a citizen, and I'm just a citizen. Uh, so, I, or I'm, I'm a citizen and I'm an artist or a musician and I want to do this or that. So I have these different hats. Uh, and so I have different routes into European decision-making. I could participate myself directly in some form or another by going onto a platform. Citizens can participate as a citizen. They don't need necessarily to be part of an organization to participate in the public consultation. That's public. right, but I have this possibility. So in addition to kind of going directly as a citizen and just as an individual 
you know, contributing my opinion uh, or, or my ideas. I can also join, you know, all kinds of organizations, civil society organizations, business networks, Absolutely. business organizations, trade unions, all kinds of organizations um, that that are involved in this process, actively involved. And through that, again, I have a sort of a multiplier effect because, of course, um, that 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 organization might have a a bigger voice than so I would have. Let as an me individual. make an example that can be, I think, interesting to many people. On 19th of October, the Commission has opened a consultation regarding the reform of the stability and growth path and the basis of the economic governance of the European Union. This, of course, has a dramatic impact on all European citizens in the various member states because these are the basic rules that apply to uh, national government budget. So, this is something on which uh, all organization, all citizens can participate. It's open until the end of the year. So as usual, it's about two, three months uh, for this uh, consultation. So that then the commission has the time to take them on and prepare its legislative proposal. So this is something, but this happens on many things like the Fit for 55, the green package uh, related to the green deal to be ready for uh, to reduce by 55% uh, our uh, uh, carbon emission and so on. So this happens for all uh, uh, regula European regulation, and it's an important tool for citizens and civil society to participate. But I, I want to stress uh, another element. The EU is a good level of government uh, to discuss this issue. And we see this because uh, the EU has been taking the right position for the last 30 years, uh, and we have not been able to do what we should have done because of the nation, member, nation state or because of the national government. When we look about the next generation EU, the next generation EU from one point of view can be seen as the Delors plan 30 years later. In 1992, when we started the single market and we decided about the single currency with the Maastricht Treaty, the Delors Commission presented a plan that uh, saying, okay, we need to invest massively to ensure uh, uh, the greening of our economy, to invest in this new information technology that will transform the world. And to do this, we need to increase the European budget because we, we, the European budget uh, at the time was 1% of GDP and still now is 1% of GDP. It has been increased to 2% of GDP to finance the next generation EU. But Please consider that member states. Just to put this in context, uh, uh, Roberto, uh, you're saying at the moment 1% of the European GDP goes towards the administration, the kind of, if you like, the, the, uh, the, the, no. the management no, no, of no. the. No, not at all. The budget of the EU is, the whole budget of the EU is 1% of the European GDP. This budget is spent. And this budget is basically. This is also maybe that then goes back to member states yes. in the form of subsidies yes. and in forms of this, programs. This finance, and yes, this finance for about 30% is the common agricultural policy. Uh, about 25% is the cohesion policy. So the, the, the funds for the region that are uh, the, the poorer region of the EU so that they can catch up. Then there are all the other programs about research, uh, innovation, uh, and the various policy, industrial policy of, of the European Union. Uh, overall, uh, only, uh, I think, 2% uh, of the European budget is spent uh, on the EU as such. 
So, so this is a bit, but this is, I think, the point that we really want to, you know, uh, bring home. So, the, the European budget, which includes the money that is spent on whatever kind of benefits for faceless technocrats in Brussels, is one percent uh, of European GDP. No, now, is, uh, is uh, the one spent for the administration? No, of the I think all. I said all of it, all of it, including the, 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 money. the budget. The budget is one percent. What is spent? For the European Union, as such, uh, is about one or two percent of that one percent. So it's okay. zero point zero zero one percent. So putting that into context, how much Rome, what's the budget say of that that a public sector budget of an average European country? How much do about fifty percent of fifty percent? You're saying, yeah. So the European Union is uh, on average is a budget which is uh, between uh, between forty five and fifty percent. So it's between forty five and fifty times smaller. Than the member states. So, so really, what we're sort of saying is, at the national level, um, you know, governments have 50 times as much money to play with uh, co compared to the European Union. Is yes. that is that? Yes, but that's normal in a sense that there are the, the national budget and European budget have different purposes. National budget and have on themselves uh, very expensive uh, items like. Education, yeah. health, security. So if you think about the uh, apparatus of each member state about education, health and security, we are talking about uh, millions of people that work for the member states. On the contrary, the European budget is an investment budget. Is, is not uh, the European Union administration. The, very often we have this nationalist uh, propaganda about the EU as a super state, as about a Leviathan and so on. I mean, the European Union altogether has less employee than the town hall of Rome or Paris. So when we are speaking about uh, the huge uh, bureaucracy in Brussels, that's a myth. That's I think that's a really, really important point to take away from, from today's conversation as well, is that it's actually, for what it is, it is a hugely efficient uh, organization. When you think about all the things it does, some of them not so good, some of them better, but on the whole, it has massively increased, you know, the, the wealth and well-being of European Absolutely. member states at, 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 at what appears to be a really kind of minor or small cost. Um, so, so this is interesting. So what, what just to sort of summarize, so we're sort of saying there's a whole host of issues, increasing number of issues, anything from, you know, global pandemics to climate change to global financial regulation, you know, right down to tax evasion and other issues where the EU has a, a very crucial role to play. European citizen can engage with these issues um, directly by taking part in consultations and other participatory mechanisms, but they can also do this, of course, you know, through parties, party political routes, or through civil society organizations and networks of all yeah, kinds. Absolutely. Uh, for example, my favorite tools is the European Federalist uh, uh, Movement, the Union of European Federalists, because uh, these are organizations that was founded by Altiero Spinelli already in 1941, as far as the Italian section is concerned, and uh, that are fighting to fully federalize the European Union. And I want to stress that to create uh, a European federation is not to create uh, the super state, the centralized things and so on. Because when we think about a fully fledged federal EU, we are thinking about a European Union with a budget of, the, of about four or five percent of GDP. 
while the member state will continue to have between 40 to 45 instead of 45 to 50. Why? Because some uh, competencies that today are uh, uh, dealt with at national level, in my view, should move to the European level and would save Europeans uh, plenty of money. Let me make just one example. The uh, security, the military. The, the European Union doesn't have a military. So it spent until last year when they created for the first time the European Defense Fund, the EU used to spend zero euro on defense. But the member states together spend about 2% of the GDP for defense, which means twice as much as the whole European Union budget. At the same, this is about 50% of what the United States spend for, for their military. But it's calculated that the European member states altogether have a capacity which is about 10% of the United States. It means that we are losing money because we are spending half of the US with a capacity of 10%. Why? Because we have 27 different army, 27 uh, uh, air academy, naval academy, and so on and so forth. But there is no member state that ever uses its own army alone. There is no military mission by Italy alone, by Germany alone. They are always part of a European mission or NATO mission and so on. And this is the proof that we don't need national military. We don't need an Italian military to defend ourselves from France or Austria. While the, United, the European member states have many more soldiers than the US. We have altogether an army which has many more soldiers than the US, but only 15% of our soldiers are trained and capable of being going to a mission. So basically, 85% of our military personnel is useless. It's certainly it, useless in a kind of in a military sense, but they have other, you know, other tasks. Yeah, yes. yeah but, 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 but basically, you are paying people not to do what they are supposed to do, because the military is supposed to be able to do the military, not yes. other things. Of course, you can use them when you have a national... Flooding calamity. or emergencies or whatever, yes. yes. And that's fine, but this is another issue. You can use civil protection mechanism rather than employing the military. And especially, when, this is the problem when you have 85, 80, 85% of the military personnel that you cannot use in mission. And if you are spending that much money, I mean, while in the United States, 80% of the military expenditure are about investment, uh, uh, tools, weapons, and so on. And only 20% goes for the personnel. In Europe, the proportion is the opposite. We spend 80% of our money for the personnel and 20% on uh, investment, uh, weapons, new things, and so on. Training, uh, this is nonsense in the 21st century. In the, we are not in the 19th century when the problem was to have large number of people ready to deploy. Today, we live in a world when you have mission where you need each soldier to carry out 2 million euro of equipment, extremely technological and so on. We don't have that, but we have hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Europe that we cannot use. So to create a single... Uh, luckily, a luckily, one should say. I mean, it's not that yeah, we do sure. want to use them. No, no, but, but the point is... What you're saying, I think, is there's waste in this. Th this is a waste of people because these people could be employed in more uh, uh, useful uh, works. Also social works or of other kinds, but uh, more useful than uh, doing nothing under the military. 
And also this means that the European defense policy will probably not necessarily require to spend the same amount of money that we are spending now. Because, I mean, we have to decide or the military capacity we have is enough, and then we can reduce the military expenditure by putting the European level competence on this. Or we want to increase them a little bit because from a military perspective, we are really weak, and that's why we are unable to stabilize the neighborhood. So, but this means that by keeping the same money, we can have a much more efficient military. So, so basically, let, let me again, let me sort of summarize uh, to this point. So, what we're sort of saying is, is um, the European Union, although it, it it is an efficient for what it is, an efficient technocracy, uh, an efficient administration, uh, and it, it, it has a, a vital role to play in the kind of, uh, you know, harmonization and the, you know, cooperation of uh, European uh, um, uh, coexistence, it, um, there is still a lot of slack and there is still a lot of room for, you know, for, for efficiency gains and for doing things differently and doing things better through further integration. Now, there, there's a, when we spoke uh, uh, yesterday, there was, there was an interesting uh, sort of um, uh, line of argument. We were sort of saying, well, you know, we're facing increasingly substantial uh, and, and some, you know, some of them existential threats at a global level. Um, and in some ways, these, you know, we just have to look at COP26, uh, you know, last week or currently still, I believe, in, in, in Glasgow. Um, and, and we see how inefficient uh, a global sort of horse trading, global bartering really is without, uh, without a strong European Union uh, and uh, without a more structure at a global level. Um, and so I guess when we talked before, one of, the, one of the things that you would like to see is sort of fundamental structural reforms that would allow European citizens to be more effective and for the EU to be more effective uh, in terms of framing, but also solving uh, problems at the global level. Can you say anything Briefing. about these reforms yeah. and how Briefing. they would improve what we already Absolutely. do quite well? The first one, as I said, is to abolish unanimity in the Council and move to qualified majority voting. And you the have explained, okay, so you have explained why that is important, because it kind of amounts in some cases to a sort of a tyranny of the minority. It yes. only takes one country to say, to no, stop everybody. we're not having that. It's a bit like the Security Council at the Absolutely. UN. Absolutely, but everybody has a veto power. Not only that, but this creates a disincentive to compromise. Nobody is willing to compromise if uh, uh, he knows that it's enough that he raises his hand and everything is blocked. So until he gets everything he wants, uh, he won't uh, stop. So while we qualify majority voting, very often we take unanimous decision anyway, because everybody is willing to compromise rather than being outvoted. So it's not that by qualifying majority, we often, even when qualified majority is allowed, often we reach unanimous decision. But this is because qualified majority voting creates an incentive for everybody to for compromise, while unanimity creates an incentive for everybody to stick to his own position and not move from there. The second point is to transform the European Commission in a fully-fledged federal government responsible in front of the European Parliament. Well, that's a mouthful. You have to explain that. Now, the democracy in the world is about the possibility for citizens to choosing, for choosing their government. 
And that's why we divide democracy in different forms of government, parliamentary or presidential one or semi-presidential, depending on if the citizen can decide their government by electing the president, like in the United States, or if they decide the government by electing the parliament, like it happens in Italy or in Germany. In some countries, they have a mixed system, the semi-presidential, like in France, in which they can vote, the citizens can vote for their president, but they also vote for the parliament and the government needs to have the, the trust, uh, trusting vote of the parliament. So on occasion, we had a president of one party and a government of another. And in that case, the president has power on foreign security policy and the government more on economic issues. But these are the free form of government for democracies because democracy is about the possibility for citizens to decide their government. The citizen in the European Union cannot fully decide the government because it's true that the commission must have a, a, a trusting vote by the parliament at the beginning and that the president of the commission is elected by the parliament on proposal of the European Council where the head of state of government of the member states uh, participate and that they need to take into account the results of the European election in proposing a president of the European Commission. But we need to strengthen this procedure by creating a stronger link between the election and the commission. And so that the commission becomes a, a, a fully fledged federal government and that citizen, when they vote for the European parliament, they know that they are, by voting for the parliament, they are deciding the majority that will express the European government. There's another peculiarity about the EU that unlike, say, the United States or France, which has got one president, the European Union has many precedents, doesn't it? They have a president of the European Parliament, they have a president of the European Commission, and they have, of course, a president of the Council. So, so they have three precedents. Yeah, but this happens also in member states. Let's make an example. Italy. Italy is a president of the Republic, as the president of the Council of Ministers, which is the head of government has a president of the Senate and of the Chamber of Deputies, the two chamber of the parliament. So this is normal. I mean, in Germany, you have a president of the Republic, you have the chancellor, which who is the, like the president of the commission for the European level. You have the president of the Bundestag and the president of, uh, of the Bundesrat. So this is, a, this is a, 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 actually a classical propaganda argument to say that the US plenty of president and bureaucracy and so on. But this is the case for all uh, states where they, when they don't have a presidential system. When Except, of course, at the EU level, uh, the most powerful presidency is, of course, the presidency of the Commission. And, and, and that presidency in Europe is, is not a directly elected one. It's, uh, but this is the same in all parliamentary systems. The, the Chancellor in Germany is not elected by the people, it's chosen by the Parliament. Yeah, but no, but this is not, there's a clear link because of course the last party that forms government uh, will put forward their chancellor, uh, uh, head of government. And of course, this is very much part of every election in Germany. So sure, when you vote but, for- But you, party, but you, you can change you... them. I mean, Germany is a parliamentary system. You don't need an election to change the chancellor. You The parliament can, uh, uh, if there is a change of opinion on the council or the parliament can elect a new one and the previous one uh, simply... L legally a, they can, absolutely. And they, it happens not just, it's very rare because in Germany you cannot uh, just uh, put out uh, a chancellor. You need to elect another, a new one at the same time. In Italy, where you don't have this uh, uh, system, 
we have uh, changes of uh, prime minister very often, on average once a year in the history of the Italian Republic, almost. So uh, there are many other parliamentary system when there is not a direct link between the prime minister and the, um, and the citizen, because this is just the expression of the parties. They elect the parties in the parliament, and it's a matter of uh, balance of power among those parties and agreements among them to form coalition. It's clear that in those countries where there are many parties, the link between the prime minister and the citizen in the election is very weak. Because when there are many parties, very often to form a coalition, you need to make a compromise about who is going to be the, the government and won't be probably a leader of one of the parties. So this, Italy is a classical example, but this happens also in many other European countries, Belgium, for example, but we could take others as well. So uh, th that's not the issue. But I think that this needs to be strengthened and the so-called Spitzen candidate, lead candidate, uh, by the European parties at the election as president of the commission is a, a, an important element that needs to be strengthened. It's true that uh, in, to have a federal government in Europe, you could also take another path, uh, which I think uh, doesn't fit uh, the European Union very well, but in theory is still possible. And it would be to unite the presidency of the commission and of the European Council and make the, that uh, new president of the European Union directly elected. Of course, this would give the uh, presidency a very strong democratic legitimacy and uh, would turn it in a strong president and turn the commission and the council in, 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 to work in a very different way. But I think this is uh, much more difficult to do in Europe because of the difference of languages and so on. It's, I think that uh, also path dependence uh, pushed towards a strengthening of the commission into a fully fledged parliamentary government of the European Union. And so, of course, um, the third element, so we said qualify majority voting the commission into, the, into a government and also give it the power of a government, which means the power of taxation, because now that 1% of GDP is mainly made by contribution by the national government. So to have a federal government, you need also to have some fiscal capacity. We are discussing it in order to finance the next generation EU to repay the debt that we are doing together. But this is a crucial element. And of course, the competencies regarding foreign and security and defense policy, because this is a competence that we see that cannot be dealt with effectively at national level. So it needs to move at the European level. Okay, so um, so so the, the the this whole principle of unanimity is, is is very clear in my mind. You know why 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 there's a problem. Um, a government to me is quite a is quite a complex and a large concept. If you were, you know, and, and there's, I mean, different people think of kind of what, what you know, what they mean by government in different ways. Um, but um, Okay, let's say then that the commission is turned into the parliamentary executive, to be more precise. Okay. So, so the legislative power would stay with the parliament and the council of ministers, the executive on the commission. The European Council could become a form of collective uh, presidency, more symbolic than, uh, than other. And uh, of course, the Court of Justice would retain, as it has, the judiciary power and the European Central Bank uh, could continue to work as the Central Bank of the Union. Okay. And this would make for a fully-fledged federal system, provided there is qualified majority and the Commission has the power regarding taxation and the other competencies. Okay, so so um, the, the, these are sort of sort of crucial 
structural changes that, that, that you would like to see happening. And there are good reasons for why you'd like to see them happening. Um, now, what, what, you know, what most people and certainly I would sort of see is, is that the next 10 years, um, between now and 2030, many of the fundamental decisions that need to be essentially point us in one direction or another uh, will have to be taken. Um, and so there is a really, there's a sort of a, a period of 10 years where really where the European Union would really be needed to, if you like, put its stamp on that, on that process and to help shape that process in a sustainable and in a just uh, direction. Um, so, but of course, for, for the EU to be able to do this, you know, the, the, the kind of structural changes that you are, that you've mentioned would need, would need to happen. Now, so in a way we are on a clock, you know, so there's a sort of saying, well, the clock is ticking. Um, if, if the EU basically kind of keeps on fuddling and keeps on moving, you know, forward the way it has, uh, as business as usual, um, then it will waste that window of opportunity uh, that it has to, to help shape this crucial period. So um, if you accept that there's a 10 year frame uh, where we could really have a maximum impact uh, on, on, on global development, be it climate change, um, be it sort of weapons of mass destruction and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, be it all financial regulation, be it tax, be it whatever. Um, how do we, is, is, is it a realistic time frame for, for the EU to kind of to get its act together? And if so, what would be the steps? How, what would the process Absolutely. look like? Absolutely. Well, the, the, now we are part uh, in, within one of these steps, the Conference on the Future of Europe. If inside this conference, in this digital platform, there will be the participation of plenty of citizens, of plenty of organizations asking for strengthening of the European Union, this can provide the momentum at the end of the conference to start a reform of the Union. And this will be, uh, can happen for a reform of the European treaties, taking away unanimity, strengthening the Commission, and already in the decision about the reform of the Stability and Growth Pact and the redesign of the economic governance linked to the next generation EU by making permanent structural the new tools we have envisaged for the next generation EU, which means European debt and European taxes. And one of the interesting things is when we talk about European taxes, it's not about taxing the citizen, but about taxing those realities that so far have been able to avoid paying taxes at national level. Because Large when we speak about when we speak about European taxes, we are discussing about the carbon tax, so taxing carbon emission, which is a, a pollute, which is a cost for society, a carbon border adjustment mechanism, so that we have a playing level fields with the other uh, industrial uh, power in the world, a tax on uh, speculative financial transaction, like, like, a like, tax yeah. on the big digital corporation that so far have been paying very very little. Uh, taxes, and there has been disagreement on the OECD about it, but why we finally have disagreement? Because the European Union has been starting the, the developing its own digital tax, and so the US said, okay, pre, before you do it by yourself and you only get the only one to get the money, we make a deal all together so that everybody gets its share. But if there was not a leadership by the European Union taking the decision that we would go ahead anyway to tax the digital uh, economy, we won't have reached the agreement at the OECD level and at the G20 last, uh, uh, last week. So uh, 
these uh, new form of taxation by the EU are all form of taxation that uh, are not uh, on the citizens. This is about uh, regaining for the citizen money that the member states are unable to collect uh, from people who are damaging society through pollution, through speculation and other things uh, without paying their dues to the provision of public goods. So also from this point of view, this shows that creating this uh, fiscal capacity for the union, it will be a great benefit for the European citizen because it is not going to decrease uh, the amount of taxes that the member states uh, are gonna get, but it's gonna increase the, the, the total amount of revenue for the citizen for the provision of public goods to finance uh, the environmental transition, the digital transition, the cohesion policy, and this is another important thing. The European Union is based on solidarity. If we look about the EU, the EU has 9% of the population, world population, 19% of the world GDP, and 55% of world social expenditure. That tells you a lot about the way the European Union is conceived. And it's important that one crucial policy of the European Union is the cohesion policy is about solidarity among the different region and the citizen because creating institution is also about creating a bond of solidarity. And this is also a crucial issue when we think about global problem regarding climate change and so on. Unless we create supranational institution to deal with common problem, we won't have solidarity, but only charity. And charity is ineffective. I mean, in the past, before we create the welfare state in Europe, we had charity. There were wealthy people that would devote some money for the poor. Okay, but we know that the situation of the orphans and of the poor was very bad in the 19th century. Then we develop state policies, social policies to deal with the poor, with the orphans, with the sick uh, and so on. And their situation improved dramatically. Why? Because solidarity needs institution needs policies. If you don't have institution, you cannot have policy, you only have charity. Charity is a good thing and it's good that everybody can, can do some charity does, but this is another issue and will never reach the level that institution can reach. So by strengthening the EU, we are also strengthening a social model that is inclusive, that is cohesive and that can be important for the world in order to cope with the environmental transition, because the environmental transition will not happen if we, if we don't manage to put with, together with it some social cohesion, because uh, in the poorer countries, otherwise the cost would be unbearable. I think there's a, um, we need to make a distinction here. There's, there, there's two issues here. There's what you might call structural issues, and then there's policy issues. And they, they are fundamentally different sets of issues. The, the structural issues are about the way we go about making decisions um, and the way we go about organizing cooperation and all the rest around Europe. The policy issues have to do with things like, for example, a transactions tax or a digital tax or indeed a carbon tax and so on and so forth. Uh, in my experience, it is much easier to mobilize around issues, around policies, than it is around structural, constitutional changes. Um, they tend to be seen as, you know, more boring, you know, there is less. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the conference on the future of Europe, uh, presumably is kind of tr trying to kind of have a balance, it, or how would you describe this? So uh, some people will, you know, 
be concerned about the structure uh, of Europe and others might be more concerned about issues and how to use that structure to, the to, to advance the cause. The nine priorities. Eight are on policies and one is about European democracy. So, so that's, that's, that's what I would have liked to hear, exactly. So now, um, what, is the, what, what is the kind of the time scale? What is the actual framework of the Conference on the Future of Europe? The, when does it, it started already, people can contribute it now. It started in May, in May 2021, and it should finish about April, May 2022. So Before now would the, be a good time to get involved. This is the time to get involved, absolutely. And it's important to get involved for two reasons. First, it's the first time that the European Union has created such a digital platform in such an open manner so that people can are not just discussing about one specific piece of legislation that the Union is supposed to do, but they can express themselves about all issues, from climate change to security, immigration, economic, everything. So there is an open space for debate. And uh, the, the more people will use it, the more probable it is that uh, first, it provide momentum for a reform. Second, that it turns structural. Because I expect that uh, if people use this digital platform, if there will be a massive participation, this will remain a tool of the union. This will somehow become a structural tool for people to present their ideas to the EU, to contribute, uh, to animate the public debate at the European level. And I think this would be a very good instrument of participatory democracy and like science. a permanent conference. Absolutely. Or at least a, a permanent uh, digital platform where a citizen can express on anything. And this can provide useful input uh, to set the agenda of the European Union for the future policies and so on. Because so let me ask you two connected questions, really, really directly to this platform. Um, the first question, and um, you, you can answer them both together. The first question um, is about when you when you look at the kinds of things people have put forward as concerns. Could you give a could you give me a sort of a kind of a, a picture of of what that looks like at the moment? What 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 people are actually demanding? Of, of Europe? That's the first question. The second question is, and this is obviously a more difficult one to answer for you, presumably, um, is, is um, what kind of guarantees uh, do we have and that these, that these concerns will be taken on board and in what form will they be taken on board? In other words, if I commit myself right. as a citizen to this exercise, how do I know that I'm not wasting my time? Sure. Well, now, so far, most of the proposal on different issues has been about uh, requesting the EU to do something. So basically, the citizen expects the EU to do more on health, for example, on migration, on uh, economics, investment, and so on and so forth. So the, basically, the request is for you to do more. What okay, is let me just follow lacking so. is, the, is the fact that the EU is uh, unable to do more because of lack of budget and lack of decision-making power. I just to make a clear example, there is this old saying in the EU that the EU is an economic giant, a political dwarf, and a military worm. But actually, this means that the EU is strong and the member states are weak. Because when we are, where we have full sovereignty on economic, the EU is a giant. Where we have kept sovereignty at national level, on politics and military, we are dwarf or warm, which means that the nation states are useless and the European Union is strong when we have given it the power and the competence to act. We need to give it the power and the competence to act on other issues 
where the citizens are asking the EU to act, but the EU has no competencies. The main example is health on the pandemic. The EU doesn't have basically competence on health. It's a national competence, but it has competence on trade. So what the EU managed to do, managed to negotiate for all the member states the provision of the vaccine and was very effective in this. It, we had more doses when, with less money than we would have had if we had 27 member states competing among themselves in discussing with the big pharma multinational. So this, but this was based on the trade competence of the EU because on health, the EU didn't have any competence. But now in the conference, we see that citizens are asking the EU to get more competence and power on health, for example. But these are okay. let me Let me just ask a quick question here to, to make this more, more concrete. Um, we said earlier that there's different players, civil society players that, that engage with the EU. Um, this conference on the future of Europe is one engagement platform, one such way in which, uh, you know, civil society can engage with the EU. So I'm assuming that it's not just individuals, people like you and me that engage uh, through the conference, but that it's also, again, networks, associations, organizations, businesses, large and small, NGOs, and, 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 and of course, maybe also political activists, maybe not through their parties, but individually as citizens sure. pushing party political points. Um, so if you try to kind of draw a picture of, of, of what, if, if, if these people would not be like digging away online in front of the computer anonymously, but if we picture a big tent and, you know, like who would be in this tent? Who are the people that are, who are the organizations that are contributing to this? What does that look like? But there is a little bit of uh, everything. The, of course, it depends also on the theme that you choose. If you go for European democracy, you will find plenty of federalists. If you go for migration, you will find plenty of association dealing with migrants. If you look about climate change, you will find plenty of activists from uh, green and environmental NGOs and so on. On economic, you will find trade union and businesses, uh, organization and so on. Quick so there is a little here, bit of everything. Uh, uh, quick question here. So all what you're giving me all these examples of what I would call positive campaigning. So, you know, I care about refugees, so I kind of do something about migration. Um, I care about whatever kind of business issue, so I kind of like push that issue. But what about what I would call negative campaigning? What about xenophobes who basically try to use that platform? Oh, that there are also some nationalists, but overall, there is more positive than negative campaigning on the platform. And about why it's important to do it and how this is taking on board. There is a team in the conference is an interinstitutional uh, uh, cooperation between the parliament, the commission, and the councils of the, mem the member states, the government, national government. And so there is a co-chair from one from each institution and a team that follow all that happens on the digital platform with uh, uh, also algorithms that uh, identify the recurrent theme, the recurrent proposal and so on. These uh, are presented to citizen panels. These citizen panels are a group on each uh, theme. There are four that uh, gather the cluster of theme and they are selected randomly around Europe, but in order to uh, reflect the differences in European society. So there will be some young, some old, some well-educated, some less educated, some different kinds of jobs and so on and so forth. So there are 200 uh, people, per, people in each of these panels. So there are 800 overall that do debate and start from what's happening on the digital platforms. 
the debate of the citizen panel is then brought to the plenary. In the plenary, there are part of those citizens who take who participate in the citizen panel. So they decide these 200, okay, there are 10 who we send to the plenary to report about our words. Then there, there are a certain number of uh, member of European parliament, member of national parliament, member of the national government, member of the regional governments, local government, some NGOs, uh, social partners, and so on. So the plenary is also a very participative uh, uh, um, framework in which there are also the citizen randomly selected that come from the citizen panels uh, around Europe. So it's a very, it's a kind of an experiment on the one hand on participatory democracy and on the other hand on stochastic democracy because these people are selected randomly uh, around Europe. So, uh, so, so um, um, this, this conference is ongoing and it'll run till, till next year. Uh, you said May, didn't you? Um, yeah. and, and, and then what? And then there will be the, the, the conclusion of the conference with a plenary taking stock of all the work they will make proposals and of course it will be up to the european institution and the national state to decide what to do with this proposal but of course if there is a big participation in the conference it is politically extremely difficult to ignore the proposal yeah if there are very few people participating of course it's easier to put it aside and say okay who cares? No, this is not a big democratic legitimacy. But this means that each and every citizen contribution is important. Because the more we participate in the digital platform in the conference, the greater the strength of the result of the conference, and the, the greater the strength we give to the Commission and the Parliament. Because here we also have must be clear. We have two sides. On the one hand, we have supranational institutions like the European Commission, the Parliament. Uh, but also the European Central Bank and the Court of Justice. And usually their position is to strengthen the European Union. By strengthening the EU, they are strengthening themselves. On the other hand, there are national governments. By strengthening the EU, they are giving up some power that today they have. This is usually fake power because it's about competence that they are unable really to manage. But still, formally, they would be pooling and sharing sovereignty that at that moment they are retaining for themselves. So what we have is that usually member states, national government are against reform and supranational institutions are in favor of reforms. So we will expect to have uh, uh, after the conference a kind of uh, a, a power struggle between the commission and the parliament on the one side and the member states on the other. And of course the parliament and the commission will be strengthened by a great participation in the conference. The more people participate, the more the commission, the panel will say, look, people are asking for this. And it will be more difficult for them to get allies from member states that are in favor of more integration. And this is about the rights of everybody. I want to strengthen this because today we are seeing what's happening in countries like Poland, Hungary, Slovenia, about freedom of the citizen, the independence of the judiciary, freedom of the media, a liberty of expression or about NGOs and so on different countries have problems on various issues. And of course, strengthening the EU means also strengthening the tools that these citizens have at their disposal to protect the rule of law and their fundamental rights. Because when we are fighting about the independence of the judiciary in Poland, it's not for the sake of theory, it's to ensure that Polish citizen or any European citizen living in Poland has the right to a fair trial if it undergo any, any, uh, any trial. 
when we are talking about the rule of law in Hungary, it's about the fact that an NGO has the right to express its opinion and that the, 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 the right to a freedom of media is a fundamental right without which there is no democracy. And this is a problem in Hungary like in other countries. So when we are about strengthening the EU, it's not just theory and it's not just about the big policies like climate change, is also about defending the very right of each and every European citizen. Absolutely. I, I think that that's a really, you know, that that's a fundamental point. And I think there's a lot of people across Europe uh, who, who would wholeheartedly agree with that, with that, with that statement. Now, uh, what I what what I uh, what I uh, think, uh, Roberto, is, is it would be really interesting uh, and I'm kind of conscious of time, so I would like to begin to wrap this up, uh, but what I would, I, you know, um, I thought the sort of the, the latter half of this conversation was really interesting. And it was, it for me, I kind of, it really began to really capture my interest when we were sort of zooming into this conference on the future of Europe. Because it's one thing to talk about structure in the abstract or to talk about issues, you know, as one remove, but when we bring them together, when we talk about an actual platform, you know, a town hall, a virtual town hall, if you like, where we can come together and, you know, across, you know, 20 odd languages, many different cultures, uh, many different political views, when we can come together uh, and consider fundamental fundamental principles and also policies of how we can make things better, then that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting project that kind of really gets my, my attention. Um, now, what I would, what I, what I would like to, what would, would I find really interesting is to, for us to kind of to think about two more conversations uh, around this uh, conference uh, of uh, the future of Europe. One, maybe sort of six to eight weeks before it actually the conference comes to an end. And at that conversation, what I would, would like is to really kind of build on your description of what is happening in the fora, in the different policy strands, you know, what the kind of the power struggles and dynamics are, you know, you know, so, so that in a way that we can take the temperature of what is going on here and that people who at this point have not yet participated, maybe we can get some more people then uh, involved in this, like on the home stretch, if you like, in, like in this, in this, in this final, uh, final six to eight weeks. So if we were to kind of roughly think about another conversation, building on what we've just been discussing next March, I think that'd be very interesting. And of Absolutely. course, yeah. And of course the thing is, if we do that, then we clearly want to have a conversation once the conference is over. And because we do want to follow this through, don't we? We want to kind Absolutely. of see how that power structure. Before we reach uh, those, uh, that point, uh, uh, an advice about if you want to follow the work of the conference, uh, I mean, very often national media are not talking about it. But uh, on euractive.com in English and in any of its uh, uh, different language version, you can also follow the works of the conference. You're finding report about the citizen panel and so on. So it's something that uh, to allow European citizens to follow what's happening in the conference of the. That's right. You, you've given me you've given me a list of links and uh, sort of uh, to different uh, websites and different platforms uh, that, that 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 directly relate to our conversation here. Um, after 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 this live stream, I, I will basically add those links um, to the video Thank so that you. people can come back and then basically take that as a starting point to explore further. Yeah, I would like to to close, uh, we, if if I can, with the with two ideas that okay. come from two big scholars. One uh, is uh, Arnold Toynbee, 
a great British historian, and he used to say that Europeans today uh, are like the Greek of the polis uh, when confronted with the ascendance of the Macedonian and then the Roman Empire, or like the Italian of the Rinascimento in their small city-states confronted with the emergence uh, of the new modern state. They had a simple choice, unite or perish. And they died to great civilization, the Hellenic civilization and the Rinascimento civilization, which were the apex of the civilization at that time in, in world history, collapse because they didn't manage to uh, unite. While there were, to, to be an actor, you needed bigger dimension. Like today, to be an actor at a global level, you need continent-wide dimension. The US and the USSR before, now the US and China. So, so the Europeans have this clear point, unite or perish. And this is, uh, for me, it's important, not uh, just to save European civilization because of any European greatness and so on. Uh, I, I'm not really interested, but because Europeans have learned some lessons in the worst possible way by provoking massacre and disaster and the worst tragedy in world history from the World War to the Holocaust and so on. But this way, they have learned some lessons. So Europe is the place where there is the, the no uh, um, death penalty. The overall, uh, the greatest respect for human rights, the greatest social expenditure and the most advanced social model and so on. We have learned this. This is not because we are good. We have learned this in the worst possible way. But at least we have learned this. So I want to save this European civilization because it has still something to offer to the world and a model of pooling and sharing of sovereignty that will be crucial if we want to create a global governance that is democratic, that is efficient and that allow us to cope with the global problem. So I'm not trying to unite Europe because of the sake of Europe or any European nationalist or any European feeling of superiority or whatever, because I have none but because I think we can still help the world to cope with the, the global problem. And I think it's useful for the world if we do. And that's why I really think we should take up this Toynbee challenge, unite or perish, and try to complete the European unification process by turning the EU into a fully fledged federal system. Uh, this was a really, this was a, a talk that started on the wrong foot, not because of us, but because I was just not capable of getting that live stream going. Um, but it got progressively, progressively better. And I'm, I'm, I really, I was, I'm very, very happy that the way it developed. And um, I look forward to continuing that conversation very, very soon. As I said, I will um, upload the links that you've sent to me. So anybody uh, watching, um, it might take 15, 20 minutes until that goes live. So, so do come back and look for those links. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully we'll see you for the next Reboot Dialogue uh, next week, Tuesday. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. You're most welcome. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.